This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Once again, I am thrilled to tell you about dailygiving.org, the incredible crowdsourcing platform for charity, leveraging your gifts, vetted companies or organizations that are recipients of these amazing donations, 8,000 and counting every single day, getting higher and higher. You get to give charity without thinking about it. You get an email delivered to you, inbox every morning telling you what organizations are beneficiaries that particular day. So you learn about amazing causes. You join with the entire Jewish people in this beautiful shared mission. It's a way of bonding us together as a Jewish nation while also doing so much good for many different fabulous institutions in our Jewish world. Dailygiving.org, please sign up today. Join me. I'm a donor and I would love if you would be as well. I think we all know that many Jewish people have been involved in the tech revolution. And today, we get to meet one such individual, Avram Miller, who is one of the major driving forces at Intel. He's a co-founder of Intel Capital. He was a vice president of business development at Intel and was one of the major forces behind residential broadband internet, fascinating inventor, computer scientist, a central figure in the early onset of personal computing and has continued to be a venture capitalist and creative thinker. He also recently wrote a book called The Flight of a Wild Duck, which is a great name. I love it. And I think you will enjoy reading it as well. A reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Email comments, questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. And now to our conversation with Avram Miller. And we are here with Avram Miller, longtime Intel executive and the author of the recent book, The Flight of a Wild Duck. Intriguing title. Looking forward to learning about what that means. And uh, how are you, Avram? I'm fine. Thank you very much. I'm speaking to you from Tel Aviv, Israel. Amazing, amazing guest. I, I didn't realize where you'd be coming from. And uh, when I got on with uh, with Avram this morning, I said, uh, good morning. And he said, good afternoon. So that kind of tipped me off that uh, <laughs> not in the state. <laughs> Something changed. There you go. But I imagine that you were not always in Israel. In fact, I know that you were not always in Israel. So uh, take us all the way back to where it all started in your life. Where are you from? I was born in San Francisco in a Jewish family. My family had been living in San Francisco from like about 1890s. Wow. Uh, most people don't know that San Francisco was the second largest Jewish city in the United States in the 1880s and 1890s. So I, I always like to tell people that are interested in that about that. So uh, it wasn't strange. I had a huge family. They all came one way or the other from Poland or Ukraine. And so that's where I was born, where I grew up. Why was San Francisco such a prominent early city? I did not know about that. Uh, obviously, you know, there, it is a port city, but uh, there are many such port cities. So why San Francisco? Uh, well, when we when Jews started coming from Eastern Europe, because of the pogroms and other things, 
they first came to New York, but by then the New York Jews were, a lot of them were well-established. They didn't really want these people coming there. So they would tell them, you know, you really should go to San Francisco because, you know, the gold rush and there's gold in the street. And they would actually pay their trip. And um, my Greek grandmother, who was born in Perluki in, in Ukraine and came over in about 1898, she lived a really long time. So I have photographs of her with my son, five generations. We had five generations together. Incredible. Anyway, she, uh, I would say to her, how did you come to do, uh, and uh, how did you get there? And she said, oh, you know, I took a boat and I took a train. Anyway, I eventually found out she when she got to New York, they only they all spoke Yiddish and they had ribbons. So the ribbons said where they were going. And she was put on another boat that went to Galveston, Texas. And in Galveston, Texas, there was a railroad, the Southern Pacific Railroad, and it would take her to San Francisco. Now, she has three sisters already, and four, uh, three sisters and a half sister in San Francisco. She was, the family was well established when she came. But anyway, that's how they ended up in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, we had a mayor who was Jewish and, you know, People like Fleischacker and all, all these things. Anyway, that's where I, how I where I grew up. Incredible. So now, San Francisco of your youth was was not the you know I don't imagine was not the tech hub and the sort of uh, entrepreneurial center that it is today. I imagine. What, what was it like back then? I was born in 1945. When I was born, the war was still going on. You know, Hitler was still alive. In fact, the day I was born was the day Auschwitz was liber- liberated. And Incredible. I always take time on my birthday to, you know, think about, think about that. So, no, well, there was no high tech. <laughs> <laughs> there was low tech. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think San Francisco at the time probably was known, you know, was maybe a financial center or whatever. I don't know exactly. I was too young to, to know, but it wasn't. We didn't have a tech technology happen, you know, quite much later in the late fifties when uh, the man Shockley, who had developed the transistor at Bell Labs at AT and T, moved to Palo Alto where his mother lived because she wasn't feeling too well, and he started the first company to build transistors, and that's how Silicon Valley became Silicon Valley because transistors is a Silicon thing. It's interesting. Really, just from one person moving there, that really set it all off. I don't know if one person moving there did it, but one person moving there gave it the name. You know, there was a lot of uh, defense work being done in Silicon Valley during that time. And there were a lot of companies, they, they're just not what you would think is high tech maybe now, but, you know, even Hewlett Packard was there, you know, they were building instrumentation, things to measure things. That was the main activity. Interesting. So what was your family's kind of Jewish orientation in your, during your youth? Yeah. So, you know, we were Jewish. Everybody I knew growing up was basically Jewish. Maybe I had friends who weren't because, you know, the neighborhood or whatever, but everybody in my family, of course, was Jewish. You know, we were Reformed Jews. We went to, uh, I went to Reformed Temple with Bar Mitzvah. You know, we were cultural Jews, I would say. We weren't, you know, the religion wasn't uh, important. We didn't keep Shabbat. We didn't keep kosher. I probably was some time before I even knew about that. You know, I didn't start off knowing about that. I only discovered it later when I was involved with Jewish organizations like B'nai B'rith, youth and so on. And I met people that were, you know, conservative. And I don't think there were any Orthodox. But, I, you know, I started getting exposed more to the diversity of the Jewish community. 
But when I was growing up, everybody I knew, they were cultural Jews. That was, you know, everybody they knew was Jewish, you know, was, and everybody who, in my family who died had been buried in one of the Jewish cemeteries. You know, we used to go there even when I was a child. It would take all day to say hello to everybody. Uh, <laughs> 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 so now, were you interested early on in science, technology, I guess, whatever technology meant at that time? Yeah. So, you know, so my childhood was, was not typical. I was very ill. I had chronic asthma. And I don't mean just, you know, I could, you know, would have asthma attacks. I mean, they would have to put me in the hospital in oxygen and give me shots of adrenaline to keep me alive. And so I was very ill. And then they put me away and uh, or put me into a place they call the convalescent home. It was in, actually in Palo Alto. And it's now the Ronald McDonald uh, home, our house. And uh, But uh, in those days, it was the Stanford Convalescent Home. I was there for a year. And that's where I you know, really developed my imagination, my creativity, because I had nothing to do. So all I would do is like, I would like see if I could change in my mind the color of the walls or rotate my bedroom or do all kinds of things in my head. And then that was when my, I was seven. When I was eight, I left and I got one back home. And I got very interested in um, science. There was a science program on radio every Saturday. And that's where I discovered, I learned about physics. I learned about Einstein. And my mom would tell me that, uh, because I had trouble tying my shoes, laces. And my mom would say, don't worry, Einstein can't tie his shoelaces either, which I'm sure she just made that up. But it made me feel better. So I began to get interested in electronics, physics, chemistry, and and those kinds of things. I was very nerdy. I was very introverted. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't the person you're talking to now. And, uh, but also I had a problem, which is I really couldn't function at school. I never could function at school. One of the reasons I wrote my book was to help people understand that, that are like that, or people who have our parents to children like that, that you can't succeed even if you have trouble with uh, school, because I basically had to test out of school. I, I just read my own, uh, I educated myself and I got out of high school by taking the test. And I never thought about going to university because nobody in my family ever did. They were shopkeepers and we never even discussed it. At the age of 18, I was a merchant seaman. I sailed on a ship that was like a luxury liner, like a love boat. And I traveled to Asia. So there I am, a skinny 18 year old kid, you know, uh, in Hong Kong and Japan and Manila and all the rest. And I did that for a while. And uh, then I got very involved in the civil rights movement and, and I went to jail and I got involved later on the, the anti-war movements and used to lay down in front of uh, Dow Chemical trucks that were carrying napalm, trying to stop the truck. I stopped the trucks, they didn't kill me, so obviously they did. So now we know you're definitely from San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. With those credentials. What, what, was it like? what was it like being in jail? How long did you go for? Oh, just overnight, you know, and... But by the time, and I'm kind of rushing through this, but by the time I was about 20 years, uh, 21, I was running low on money because I had made some money when I was a merchant seaman. And so I said, well, you know, I need to find a job. I was like managing a pizza store and I started getting by. I got to find a job. What can I do? And uh, I said, anybody know anybody looking for somebody? And one of my friends said, well, he was a resident at the medical school. He says, well, I have a friend. Uh, I'm sorry, not a, a friend, but I'm work, I'm res- have residency with this guy, Professor Joe Camilla. He wants to monitor brainwaves of people and see if he can teach them to control the brainwaves 
giving him feedback and he needs to develop some equipment. Do you think you could help him? And I said, maybe. So he introduced me and I was introduced to Joe and uh, he told me what he wanted to do. And I said, let me see if I can do it. If I can do it, can you hire me? We hire me and he said, yes. And I did it. And I designed the first equipment for biofeedback of brainwaves. And I got, and I was hired as a research assistant. And I'm going to move this along quickly, but after three years of doing that, and we were very successful and very well known, I became a founder of a medical institution in Rotterdam called the Thorax Center, which was for cardiovascular and pulmonary medicine. By that time, I was an assistant professor. Now, I'd never been to college. Okay, was, uh, at the age of 29, I was an associate professor uh, of medicine. And so I had a career in medicine for quite some time, and I published a lot of papers, 13 years, and I published a lot of papers and so on. And at the age of, let's say, 33, 34, I decided to give it all up and start again. <laughs> and to do it in the computer industry. So I, I have been doing work in computers and I've been designing computers on the side for the second largest computer company in the world, Digital Equipment Corporation. And uh, I asked them to give me a job and they did. And I ran half the hardware engineering in the second largest computer company in the world. I had thousands of engineers working for me. Again, you know, I've never been to engineering school. And uh, I was there for about four years. And then I ended up at Intel. So before, before we get to Intel, I just want to ask what, first of all, what was it like working in two industries where you didn't have any formal training? <laughs> Did, was it hard to garner respect from people? Did people kind of, you know, ever become jealous of you? That's a really important question. Okay. So first of all, the way our society evolved through the industrial age, we created a school system that basically teaches people to be on time, to accept boredom and discipline. Okay. It's a filter. It filters out things like intuition, imagination, and creativity. Now, these are important things. And so uh, companies tend to, you know, well, the uh, big company I'm going to hire somebody who went to Harvard and Harvard, they had got to, you know, get good grades and all the rest. And so after a while, they're deprived of some of the things that they really need. And this is true in every institution. So number one, I was convinced that I had something to offer. So I never felt embarrassed. Okay, that's really important. I never felt embarrassed. Wasn't nothing wrong with me. You know, I was, you know, frankly, I was smarter than most of them and better educated. So nothing wrong with me. That's how I felt. And so the trick was, okay, how do you get people to give you the opportunity? Because what I discovered, uh, once I had the opportunity, nobody cared. Once I could prove myself, once they see what I could do, once they could interact with me, you know, I mean, I had many successes. How can you argue with that? You know, so, so the trick is how do you get in the door? And I think that that's not easy. It takes perseverance, but it takes confidence, you know, and it takes, I have to say, it takes a little bit of a personality. You know, you have to make people like you that want to give you an opportunity. I learned that when I was sick. I learned that I had to make jokes, make the nurses laugh, because if the nurses laughed, they took better care of me. So that was really an important lesson. And, um, you know, so the way I got into the Thorax Center, which was and got an academic position, was because I could do things that other people didn't know how to do. That was just frankly it. They needed what I had. If they could have gotten from somebody else who had a PhD, they probably wouldn't have. It wasn't available from those people. And so, and at Intel, Nick Intel 
realized that they become so insular. They wanted to find somebody that was different. And that's why my book is titled The Flight of Wild Duck, because Andy Grove, who was the CEO, another Jew, but anyway, the CEO of Intel, called me his wild duck. And always said, you know, I have to have somebody like Auburn around, you know, that will fly in a different path. Well, why did you switch industries from medical to technology or computers? Uh, okay, so I felt like I was, you know, at the top of a very small <laughs> thing. You know, using computers in medicine in 1983, uh, uh, when I made that decision, you know, that was a very small world. I knew all the people in that world. They knew me. What was I going to do? I was, I was my early 30s. I'm going to write, you know, just keep doing this, writing papers for the next 40 years. So I said to myself, no, you've got to break out. You're too confined. You either have to think of yourself as a medical scientist that isn't tied necessarily to computers, or you need to think of yourself as a computer person that's not tied to medicine. And once I did that, it was easy because I couldn't give up computers. I was in love with computers. And, and so then the task was, okay, well, how am I going to succeed in the computer industry? And given that I've never been to engineering school and never had done any of these things, Fortunately, I had, as I mentioned, and kind of on the side, designed some of the computers, parts of some of the computers digital. They knew me. They wanted me. And I decided to work in in the engineering organization because I wanted to really prove that I was an engineer, you know, because that company was basically founded by Ken Olson, who was an engineer. And in the mold of, you know, the engineers were the kings there. So I had to prove that I was technical. What did you do at Intel? I know you had some major breakthroughs there. What was your what was your career like once you got to Intel? I am sure as a listener you are familiar with The Forward, the long-standing Jewish publication. Well, The Forward has a new podcast called A Bintel Brief, based on the long-standing advice column in the paper. It is now turned into an audio advice column where you could get interesting answers to fascinating questions from Gina Green who is a movement builder, very active in the Jews of Color initiative, as well as Lynn Harris, a writer and activist, also a comedian, and a former advice columnist for Glamour and other print magazines of blessed memory. A Bintel Brief, B-I-N-T-E-L is the word Bintel Brief. Give it a listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Well, so when I was hired by Les Bedez, Bash number three, also another Jew, Hungarian Jew. Anyway, Les hired me because he wanted to bring somebody in that would think differently than the other people in the company. And basically, they, they call it strategic hire. Uh, I was hired and they didn't have a job for me. They said, you figure out what you want to do. And I was hired at a very senior level. This was not, you know. And so I spent about three years helping them. They had a systems business. I didn't really know that they what they were doing, but when I joined, I realized they really needed my help, and I felt I had to give it to them. Once I finished giving them what I had to give, I said, I don't want to do this. I want to go out and I want to expand the business of Intel, and uh, I want to acquire some companies. I want to do some minority investments. I want to bring in some new blood. That's what I want to do. And I moved down. I had been up in Oregon where they had a big facility. I moved down to well, it was kind of the headquarters. They said they didn't have a headquarters. I said, that's okay. Can I sit close to Andy Grove? I don't care what you call it. So that's how I was in the hall from him. And uh, and then 
I started doing minority. So I started doing some acquisitions. Didn't go very well because the culture of Intel was so strong. It would, the uh, antibodies would come and reject the foreign object, you know? So uh, then I realized, well, we should really do minority investments uh, called venture capital. And I started doing that. And I was successful in it. And then Les, who had been my boss, uh, was still my boss. And he asked him to uh, work with me and work full time and make this a, a major activity in the company. So that's how we created 1991. We created Intel Capital. Intel Capital was, it may still be the most success, successful corporate venture group out there. And, uh, you know, we started with $50 million. When I left, we had $9 million and, uh, we had, uh, we realized another three, uh, $9 billion and we realized another $3 billion. It was very successful and it helped, you know, it helped Intel develop its markets. It helped Intel to get some insight into the future. And along that, and the thing that would maybe speak to a lot of your listeners is in 1992, I was very interested in the home market for computers. There really wasn't much of one, but I noticed that people were starting to stay after work to use their computers to get it on AOL or whatever. And I, I decided that we should use, we should develop residential broadband. So the cable modem, I started that activity and DSL and so on. And I got, I funded our Intel labs for, to develop the first technology for cable modems. And then I had to go out and convince the cable industry that they weren't in the TV business. That TV television was just an application of their platform. They were really in the communications business. And, uh, you know, we were, vol- it took a long time. It took about seven years to get to a million homes. That was a lot of work. A lot, a lot of work, but it paid off. And today we all use this stuff. Incredible. So what would you say was some of your signature breakthroughs in the technology space and some of the the great discoveries or, you know, finds that you had as an investor, maybe as a minority investor and so forth? Well, so it all, you know, uh, so when we decided to do broadband, that created a huge world in which to invest because you know i used to call it like a stack of things you know there would be the chips that would make things happen you know there would be you know communication products like routers and other kinds of things <laughs> it would go stack by stack there would be you know the application software you know so i mean so maybe some of your uh, listeners listen to uh shark tank and on shark tanks there's mark cuban well I gave, I invested in Mark's company. That's how he became Mark Cuban. Uh, so it was Shark Tank, except he was on the stage and I wasn't listening to him. So, you know, uh, companies like, uh, he had it called broadcast.com or VeriSign. VeriSign, you all, you know, when you see all this security on the internet, that came from this technology that was created by a company called VeriSign because we wanted to facilitate commerce using the internet, but people were scared. Uh, that the credit cards were going to be taken, all these things. And so, you know, we would identify what the bottlenecks were and then we would remove them. And in the process of removing them, we would make a lot of money. So GeoCities was like one of the first, you know, thing, things kind of like, I don't know if you say like Facebook or whatever. There were many. So, you know, we were lucky, lucky or smart. I don't know. But anyway, you know, we sometimes we invest a couple million dollars we would make a half a billion or a billion dollars, you know, <laughs> uh, it's kind of crazy. <laughs> well, now it sounds like along the way, 
you you became more engaged in the Jewish community and or in certain uh, organizations and things like that. What what was that journey for you? It wasn't a turning point. I was always involved. And I was thinking about it today because I knew I was going to talk to you and you might ask me, right? So I had to go back. And so, so for me, one of the pivotal things, one of the most important things in my personal development was when I joined AZA, BBYO. And I was 13 years old and I joined a chapter and I learned about organization and I ran for office and I was the vice president and I was a president and then I got a position on the regional board and so on. And I learned to be a leader. I learned leadership. I mean, I really think I learned it from BPYO. And, uh, you know, I learned to give a talk and a speech and all these things you wouldn't normally do when you were 13 or 14 years old. You know, you, maybe you'd do a speech at your bar mitzvah, but, you know, it was, that was it. Uh, and so uh, that was very important. I think the next thing that happened in my life was, first of all, I, I became much more Zionistic. Uh, I, can, I can absolutely not tell you why. Nobody in my family thought about Israel uh, much, but for somehow, for me, it, it was, I don't know, it was just something magical about it. And so I, I felt very strongly Maybe the about entrepreneurial it. spirit that uh, you related to. Yeah, I, yeah, right. But I really, and so I, you know, there were many times I thought about uh, moving to Israel, but I didn't. And then I just travel a lot in Europe and so on. And then I met, some of your people, uh, listeners will know Shlomo Karlovach. Sure. House of Love and Prayer. Yeah, right. Well, yeah, I was there. Uh, and, you know, I was kind of a hippie. I was a kind, I was a hippie. And, uh, uh, you know, I thought I could be a rabbi because I wouldn't have to shave my beard, cut my hair. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, uh, maybe a Nazareth. <laughs> and, and one thing I, you know, didn't mention because, uh, is that during my teenage years, I studied music. I actually got a scholarship to conservatory in uh, music in San Francisco, and I studied composition and orchestration. And I had been involved in the music scene in San Francisco, and I learned to be, I became a jazz pianist and so on. Anyway, Shalomo was into music, you know, so I loved that, and I traveled with Shalomo. And, uh, and, you know, I was kind of into it, you know, uh, during that time. And... Uh, you know, reading about Jewish mysticism and reading Boober and people like that and so on. So that was that point in my life. Then I went to live in Holland and I married a woman who wasn't Jewish, who became Jewish because she wanted to become Jewish. She wanted to become Jewish probably before she met me. And then we had two sons in Holland. And I said, you know, we can't bring up our children in Holland. It's a graveyard for Jews. You know, I, I would I would see these buildings that would have you know, Hebrew on them, but they were not, you know, they were like, uh, on the cornerstone and so on. And uh, so after five years living in Holland, we moved to Israel. We moved to Israel in 1974. And we lived here for five years. And I had a daughter born here as well. But it wasn't easy. It was really hard. It was like probably one of the worst times of my life. Israel was not the Israel of today. And I started a business as well as being on the uh, staff at the university. And my business was all exports. I was traveling all the time. I didn't learn to speak Hebrew. My kids only spoke Dutch when we first went there uh, because I, I'm fluent in Dutch. And I spoke with my first wife. And then uh, she switched, switched over to Hebrew and they're all speaking Hebrew. I can't hardly speak Hebrew. I'm having trouble with my kids speaking and whatever. And that's when I had made the decision to go to the computer industry. It didn't make sense to stay in Israel then because the computer industry was 
to just call it nascent was uh, would be an overstatement. And uh, but I, I, you know, I was still I felt sad that it, it, it didn't work out uh, for me to live in Israel. And so eventually, though, I'm back. So I live in Israel, <laughs> and it's a different country, and I love it. Uh, I love living here. And I want I want to get to why you. Uh, Maui moved to Israel uh, a little bit later on, but as you were in San Francisco, did you stay at Intel the rest of your career? Or at some point, did you want to kind of strike out on your own or do something a little different? So in 1999, I left Intel. I left pretty much when Andy Grove had uh, resigned as CEO. And I left for a variety of reasons we don't have time to go into, but but also one of the reasons was you know, I had I had, had prostate cancer. I write about this in my book. I had had some, you know, other health issues. I just decided, I, I came up with an idea which said, I'm going to live my life like I only have 10 years. And I'm going to always decide, if I only have 10 years to live, is this what I want to do? And so when I asked that question, I said, no, I don't want to continue to be an executive with Intel. And I want to be on my own. I don't want to work for anybody. So I went on my own. I started my own consulting company, advisory company. I was on the board of a member of... Uh, of important technology companies around the world. And I did that for several years. And then I kind of lost interest, you know. So, uh, you know, I, did, I just didn't want to have to show up anymore. I, I, I mean, I loved helping people. And I would advise all kinds of startups and I would invest in startups, but I didn't want to be on the board of a big company where I had to actually show up and, you know, read stuff and all the rest. And, uh, you know, I had gotten married to my second wife, I met her in 2000, we got married in 2003. And, uh, you know, I kind of, you know, my first marriage suffered a lot by the fact that I was working 20 hours a day. Okay. So this time I decided, no, it's going to be the opposite. I'm going to work four hours a day <laughs> and, and have a good life. And I've had that and I'm very privileged to have that. So t- tell me a little bit about the book. Why did you write it? And what's it really all about? Okay, I wrote it because I felt like if I didn't write it now, I might never write it, and then everything would go with me. I'm 76. I wrote it to tell stories about what happened in my life, and particularly also in my business life, mostly about my career, because I was in the room. You know, I would be, I was part of, for instance, the executive team between Intel and Microsoft. I would be there in the room with Andy Grove and Bill Gates, uh, you know, four times a year. You know, I knew everybody, you know, I, Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, I, I knew them all. I mean, I met Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. I had dinner with them both when they were 25 years old. So, you know, I have particular insights that, you know, uh, I felt like I wanted to express. And I also wanted to explain how I thought things happened. And I wanted to document things because I have a lot of information. I have a lot of documents. I I have 2,000 documents. And I interview like 70 people. I, I wanted to, to do that. I wanted to share my story. I wanted to give inspiration to people like me, you know, particularly all the parents, because many times parents who find out about my life story, they say, you know, I have a kid like you. You know, how do I handle my kid? What do I do? How do I help them? And I wanted to help them. And also, you know, we had, I was working on it for a while, but, you know, I, I'm not sure if it, was for, if it wasn't for COVID, I would have finished it because, you know, it's like a lot of work. And I spent three years working on this book. And uh, I'm uh, pretty happy with what it is and what it became. I didn't know how to write a book before, you know, I had to learn. <laughs> Quite a process. That's actually, you referenced the idea of 
you know, people coming up to you, parents asking you for advice. And I want to actually ask you about that. What, what advice do you give for you know, the kids who are maybe more introverted and maybe don't fit into the, the mold exactly? Um, nowadays, they would probably, you know, you know, do something with the, the you know, autistic spectrum. That's, that's the way everything is, seems to be going. And my wife does a lot of work with the kids in that, in that regard. Uh, but what advice do you give to either kids and or their parents that maybe are a little bit more introverted? Well, first of all, let me start with the parents. Yeah. The advice I give is your job is to love your child without judgment. Okay. Because that's all you can really do for them. <laughs> okay. The rest are going to have to do for themselves. But if you judge them, you're going to basically stain them for life. So don't judge them. Love them. That's the parents. Okay. And they're going to be okay. They're going to be okay. You know, especially now, you, you know, I had to teach myself by going to the library every day and sitting there reading these books. You know, now with the internet, my God, I can't imagine what I could have done with this. To the kids, first of all, I tell them they're going to be okay. That don't let people tell you you're not going to be okay because you're going to be okay. Okay. But take risk. Don't be afraid to take risk. And there's two, you know, uh, you know, I call them siblings. One is risk taking and the other is tenacity. If you take risk, you're going to fail. And so you have to try again. And then you're going to fail again. And then you're going to try again. If you keep trying, you're going to succeed. And so this is something because my book is not all about my successes. Believe me. I was shocked when I was working on this book to realize, I said, you know, I'm shocked to realize that I did more than I remember and I accomplished less than I thought. <laughs> and, and then all the failures, because you kind of like, I don't dwell on them, you know? <laughs> so I was surprised by how many times I actually failed doing things, but I never let the failures stop me. So that's, that's the kind of the advice I would give. I would also say it really helps to try to do something in an area which is not overcrowded. You know, I started, I was successful because I learned to program computers and design hardware for computers when I was 21 years old in 1966. There were very few people around that could do that, you know? And so if I was starting all over, if I was 21 years old now, I wouldn't try to do that. I would be, you know, there was just a million people doing that. I'd be looking for something new. What's the new thing that where I can excel, where if I can accomplish something, it's going to be important. And finally, how did you end up in Israel? When did you decide to start moving there? And, and what was that whole process like? And, and what's it like today, now that Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and Israel in general are such a, a hub for, for tech? Is that something you're involved with there? Yeah. Well, you know, my wife and I were traveling a lot. And sometimes I would come, I would go to Israel. And, it, and I started realizing that when I was traveling normally, when I would leave a place going to someplace else, I would be thinking about the place I was going to. But when I left Israel, I would be thinking about the place I was leaving. And I paid attention to that. And I started letting myself feel the love that I had felt before because I had suffered a lot by the fact that I had not succeeded the first time. And so I, I said to my uh, wife, I said, look, I'd like to spend more time in Israel. You know, let's find, you know, Let's fly and get a home there. You know, we don't have to live there full time, but let's be there a lot. And so, you know, she said, what? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> anyway, uh, she was going to try and we started renting the place. And then we started looking for a place. And eventually we found a place that we had to redo. That took several years. That's pretty an experience in Israel. <laughs> and, uh, 
but now we live in left Tel Aviv, in the heart of Tel Aviv. We're you know close to Rothschilds, and and there's 20 great restaurants five minutes from my house. So I walk. But yeah, it's not the same place. It's very exciting. Israel is one of the most exciting. Tel Aviv. I, I don't know that I would live in Israel. You know, I mean, I would not live in Tel in Jerusalem myself. You know, I need what Tel Aviv has. You know, it's all kinds of different people, and it's excitement, and it's smart people. It's like I, I call it. You know, South Beach with smart people. And, uh, you know, there's lots of talents and everybody's open. And the other thing that's true about Israel that uh, at, at this point in my life is very important. Israel doesn't have ageism. You know, people don't look and categorize you at different ages. I can have a 25-year-old friend and it wouldn't be strange, you know. And, you know, I'm being 76, you know, I, I mean, I am old, but I don't really feel old and I don't want to be in a rocking chair, you know, <laughs> I want to be, you know, spend time with young people that are vibrant and have new ideas and so on. I can spend as much time as I want working with technology companies here. I don't want to spend all my time doing that. I've done that. I've invested in hundreds of technology companies. I don't need to do that. But, you know, I do have this access to as much tech talk as I want, <laughs> uh, which is good. And uh, I don't know what's I wouldn't want to be, you know, I mean, we, we do go to the United States for about three months of the year because we have our family there, my children, my grandchildren, my wife's family, uh, or my sister, or friends, everything. You know, we, uh, and also it's very hot here in Tel Aviv in the summer. I don't want to be here. We don't be here. So it works out. So just in closing, what's next for you over there? Any any major projects you're working on or you just kind of taking it one day at a time and enjoying life in the Holy Land? So two things. When I originally wrote the, working on the book, I wanted to write lessons. I had kind of developed 100 lessons, each one, each lesson of one page. And then the book got too big. It's 340 pages, and it took three years, and I needed to finish it. And so I decided I'd write the lessons and put them up on my website for the book. The website's called www.wildduckflight.com. And there I'm putting up essays. I haven't done it yet, but I'm putting up essays and lessons. So I keep doing that, and I can do that incrementally. I don't have you know, like a deadline to do that. Uh, and the other thing is I'm thinking about going back to write music because I I don't have, I can write music, and but I found it very difficult to be just disciplined in writing music. Because I was a jazz piano player and I could just like go improvise, but that's not the same as composing something. But now that I went through the whole process of writing a book and the discipline of writing and rewriting and editing and everything else, I'm very curious about whether or not, how would that affect, uh, will I carry over in writing music? And then the last thing is, you know, I study Hebrew uh, five days a week uh, uh, and uh, I have private lessons for an hour. I have one right now just to finish. And, uh, you know, I'd really like to become fluent in Hebrew. I'm not, but it's, uh, it's an amazing language. I love it. And so, uh, and I, you know, I speak other languages. So, you know, I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> it's a good thing to, to learn. Well, it's refreshing to observe someone of your vintage, not just uh, hanging it up and, you know, and just kicking back on the beach, but really continuing to work and produce and, and try to, you know, be active in so many different ways and not, you know, not only creating new things, but lending your wisdom and the, the lessons you've learned, uh, really living through the formation of 
the modern technological revolution. Um, yeah. Sharing the, sharing that wisdom with the next generation uh, through your you know this conversations through this podcast and of course through your book, The Flight of a Wild Duck, which I'm sure people can get on Amazon and uh, and anywhere else. Yes. Um, so and if they put yes. my name in, if they go to Amazon, just if they don't remember the name of the book, maybe they'll remember my name. I don't know where. I don't know how you communicate with your listeners, so you can give them a link. We'll put a link in there, show notes. And uh, Avram Miller, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you. And, uh, And have a sweet new year. And just a final reminder to join me along with almost 8,000 other people as a daily donor to dailygiving.org. You will be thrilled with yourself for days, months, and years to come. Dailygiving.org, proud sponsor of Jews You Should Know. Please join me in signing up right now. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at jewsyoushouldknow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.